Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell. Okay, so today we're going to talk about tariffs and God. Did God invent tariffs? <laughs> And are they to be used? Is it somewhere in the Bible that we should do tariffs? No, that, that's taking us a little, pushing a little too far. But we, we'll, we'll try to bring up some of that in terms of uh, the use of tariffs as a policy. Is there some justification? Is it the Christian thing to do? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe we'll find out together as we, as we work through this topic. Um, so I, I was pulling off of a, uh, this week there was an article published. Uh, this was through Fee. I had heard it on NPR, I believe. So the title of the article is Trump's washing machine tariffs cost consumers $800,000 per job created. And it's like, wow, is that true? How could that be true, right? So, you know, Trump probably gets on the news and says that we're, we've created American jobs. And he wouldn't be lying if he stopped there. And he probably does stop there. I, I don't want to say that he, he's pushing the envelope. But the question economists would always bring in is, at what cost? Right? And so that's part of what they're doing here. So a tariff is simply a tax on imports. So before we let those foreigners bring their washing machines into uh, our shores, uh, we zap them with a... Uh, tax essentially, and so it's it's just a tariff on imports. And according to this article, uh, it was done on washing machines, and the government was able to raise eighty-two million dollars worth of tariff revenue from that. Which, hey, sounds pretty good, you know. What do we got? Three hundred million people or so, and we got eighty-two million bucks. Maybe we can spread that around, you know, on some good programs or something. But when a tariff's put into place, it restricts the supply coming into our nation from other countries and therefore raises our prices domestically. And the economists that uh, looked at this found that we had overall, due to washing machine increases, and it turned out dryers, so on a kind of a side note, washing machines and dryers are complementary goods. And so yeah, highly um, they, they tend to go uh, be purchased together. And so I don't know all the details on this, but apparently the manufacturers domestically successfully raised the price of dryers also, uh, that they kind of went together on this. And so all in all, we had about $1.5 billion with a B that was through higher prices. So imagine millions of people buying washers and dryers, all facing prices that are higher domestically because of the tariff. And uh, that is spread out among the many uh, in higher prices. And so if you take that 1.5 billion divided by the number of jobs, which were also illustrated, which I thought this is telling because you don't always hear these details. This was a true case study. 
There were 200 jobs at the Whirlpool plant in Ohio. So yay, Ohio, you gained 200 jobs. And it was a specific city. I can't remember what it was uh, off the top of my head here. And uh, Clyde, Ohio. There we go. Clyde, Ohio. And then there was 1,600 jobs combined at the Samsung plant, uh, which was in South Carolina, and the LG factory in Tennessee. Those two combined had 18 hundreds, or I mean uh, 1,600, so the grand total of 1,800 new jobs, and of course that's the headline that we hear, uh, jobs are being created, and this is good stuff, and uh, we've got the tariffs, but with these higher prices, if you take the $1.5 billion worth of higher prices and spread it over the jobs, $817,000 per job. Yeah, let's just let's just leave a little silence there, right? Think of what a <laughs> colossal waste that is. I mean, Levi, your thoughts? I mean, I, there's a few arguments to be made on distributional issues, but bottom line is that just sounds insane. Yeah, I think as you were talking about that, I, I was thinking about Hayek's admonition that an economist who is only a co an economist is not a very good one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. so, or it's something like that. I can't remember exactly what he said, but you know, whenever we're talking about these costs and benefits of policy discussions, it seems like there's, I think it's always good to say, what is the cost, right? So that was the thing that you brought up is, well, okay, there's all these jobs that we preserve, but what was the cost? You know, how much did the price of washers and dryers go up? Blah, 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 all that sort of thing. Right. And that's good, but I don't think that fully answers the question because the next, the next thing to think about, and so this is where we have to put a different hat on as you know, an ethicist or a philosopher or whatever, yeah. and to say, okay, now how much weight should we put on the cost versus the benefit? Mm -hmm. In other words, these 200 people in Ohio and these other places where these jobs, yeah. okay, sure, so it costs $800,000 per job spread out over you know, the other, you know, 299,000 or two, whatever, yeah. the other 300 million people ish, right. Right? right? So is that worth it to them to, to preserve those jobs? Does it, yeah, okay, monetarily maybe, maybe not, but you know, maybe there's something else in there that uh, benefits those people. And so just a few things I can think of off the top of my head, and maybe we can go through these, but Number one, and this is something that I always got when I would have conversations like this in the, the agricultural space. Mm -hmm, so, right. so, you know, of course, in the ag space, there's a lot of management of, you know, international trade competition. For, cotton comes to mind. Yes, I mean, cotton was a huge one. And, you know, of course, they, they lost a lot of their support from a rather strange... I guess you wouldn't call it a court case, but basically Brazil wasn't happy about the way we were subsidizing our cotton. And so, right, right. But that was more of a subsidy issue than a trade yeah. issue. But Yeah, but, but which is another thorny topic. That, yeah. but, but basically, kind of a corporate welfare argument that, especially sure. as the family farm disappeared, here we are subsidizing right. you know, large corporations. The one that comes to mind is in Africa, it's beautiful land to grow cotton is what I'm told in at least different regions of Africa. So here we are subsidizing our rich corporate cotton growers at the expense of, mm -hmm. you know, people on living on a couple dollars a day. So Yeah, and and, and so the, the argument was always, okay, well, we 
and again, not, not on the subsidy issue, but on the tariff and quota issues. Yeah. Do we need to have tariffs and quotas for some other purpose that's not just about the sort of average dollar cost per head that it costs us to, to implement these policies? And so the first one I always would hear was, well, we need to have our own food supply. In other words, this, the, yeah. the risk and uncertainty brought about by the fact that international governments are going to fight with each other and that sort of thing. Yeah, the old national security argument. Sure. Um, and, but I think, but put slightly differently than, you know, I guess whenever I hear something like that, I always think of, you know, I was in high school in the Bush years. So, well, it was always about, you know, national defense and George Bush and blah, 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 blah. But I think for me more, it's more about, you know, having food that we can eat. Do we need to protect the domestic industry and you know, it could be whatever, it could be washers and dryers, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if we get all our washers and dryers from steel France, producing because of weapons or <coughs> sure. whatever. But yeah, again, I'm not always concerned about the weapons thing, but yeah. but yeah. So I think that's one point to make is that potentially when you bring in risk and uncertainty into these discussions, maybe there's a little bit more to be said about the costs broadly construed, right? So yeah the cost of that variability or potential uncertainty. But wouldn't you say we, we never seem to get specific on the jobs, like who's actually helping because when we drill down, that's why I wanted to bring up the cities and the states. It's pretty specific here who benefited, right? There was specific states and spe- probably specific cities in terms of, you know, those folks worked there and there was new jobs, presumably some form of manufacturing although that's a lot of that's been automated away. But whatever that job looked like, it probably helped that local economy. So here we've got the federal government essentially doling out favoritism and and goodies to a select group of people in select spaces at the expense of people in every other state, really uh, spread out among all of the United States, whoever bought washers and dryers in the United States, because it's it's pretty much a commodity good. So the pricing was probably pretty level, you know, across the Lowe's and the Home Depot's and the whatever, you know, the major uh, retailers of washer and dryers. So I suspect all of that uh, 1.5 billion was fairly evenly spread um, here going to the, to the benefit of these local people. So I think one question is, a, I'm not sure that was even the intent in the first place. Like when, when, when a politician tries to sell us on tariffs, and they say, well, we're going to bring back jobs and we got to, you know, do that. It's never brought up that, well, this will specifically help Ohio, Tennessee, and South Carolina. Is that okay, voters? Yeah. Right? And, you know, I think as soon as you bring up that it's going to a small group, people would start to question, like, really? Where's my share? Yeah. Right? And then, oh, well, don't worry about that. I'll, I'll start doing the honey growers for you. And, oh, Wisconsin, you need some milk production? I got your back, right? And, and so then that's how this starts to escalate potentially as people start to see the favoritism and that it worked for Ohio, presumably, or for them people, for those people it made them better off at, at other people's expense. And then we start to get into tariff escalation, not even in the traditional way we say with the tariff fight, like we put on tariffs, then China puts on tariffs. That, that way we're fighting another country here, internally, there might be pressures to see more tariffs. So how come Ohio got it and we didn't get it, you know? That's so, I, so this strikes me as a uniquely, I guess, maybe U.S. and Canadian problem. 
In other words, and maybe, well, not even Russia, probably. Countries that are very big geographically and very, 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 very dispersed population. It's true, yeah. So, like, if, because if we're, if we're talking about Portugal or, Sweden or, or France or Switzerland, right, these tiny little countries. So, you know, if Ohio could, you know, conduct its own tariff policies, yeah. then maybe that would make a ton of sense, right? But in these massive countries that are so big and so spread out, you know, I could see somebody making the argument that, you know, from just a fillover benefits perspective, that there's just not, there's not a lot of spillover benefits to this sort of thing because the political unit is so big. Yeah. But so maybe that's an argument for making smaller political units where they're so big. Back to this federalism idea. Well, the, the original I mean, either, yeah, pushing but, things back to the state level or just taking the, you know, the United States and maybe creating four countries out of it instead of one. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I don't like those discussions. But no, I, I, I know. I, I know. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but conceptually, uh, right, because essentially we have a free trade zone among 50 states. So we say, right. sorry, we're, we're all agreeing to have, you know, no tariffs from state to state. Right. Um, I just think it's, it's a, the, the cost itself is magnified or the benefits are, are, are reduced because of the size of the political unit. Yeah, no, I, that's yeah, I think that's a good point. And that's what we see here with uh, the tariff argument being at this kind of country level, mm-hmm. but the benefits from the tariff being very concentrated within our political unit as the United States or, sure. you know, or into smaller geographic areas. So I think this might be a good time to kind of flip it to say, well, why do economists like myself say free trade is better, reduce trade barriers, right? And so... I think at this point, it's kind of nice to undo the logic is that it's real simple. Remove the tariff, washer and dryer prices go down by that $1.5 billion. These folks lose their jobs, which is bad. But if each of the uh, 1,600 people here lost their job, we'll end up having a net benefit in the billions, right? Right, um, yeah. just from reducing those tariffs. And that's just on our side of the ocean. So yeah. then the trade barrier and free trade argument goes for the other countries too. They have the same effect. So we, we each play to the goods that we have a comparative advantage in, specialize in what we're good at, trade with each other, and both countries overall are made better off. But as this illustrates today, within each country, there's always winners and losers. And that's why we have these disagreements of, and people misunderstanding why free trade is a good thing. It actually creates win-win situations for both countries, but within countries, the producers here in this case of washer and dryers are going to lose. They're going to have to cut back on production, cut back on employment. They're still going to exist, but they're going to scale back. And then the winners are the United States consumers who now buy washer and dryers at a lot lower price. And that flip side is happening over in other countries where their uh, washer and dryer producers are winning. They're going to gain jobs um, and they might face some higher prices potentially over there, but their wins will outweigh their losses. So that's kind of the free trade argument that gets kind of uh, mumbled, jumbled up all the time in the media because of these news blurbs, people focusing in on costs but not the benefits, and people focusing in on the benefits but not the costs. 
and uh, we we need to look at both. So if anybody uh, has got anything lasting to say, otherwise this might be a good spot for a break. And then, uh, yeah, I think I think on the other side, just to tease it a little bit, I want to. I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit about the free trade agreement stuff, and a little bit of kind of kind of think about that more broadly too. Because I think you're right about the, you know, we need to talk about costs and benefits both. But I think there's some stuff on the free trade agreements that that also gets left out a lot of times. Yeah, sounds good. All right, we'll catch you back here in uh, 30 to 60 seconds. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Levi or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. Okay, so we're back from our break and just going to want to take this tariff and free trade agreement discussion a little farther. And so, you know, there's, of course, the sort of standard, the standard discussion of costs and benefits and how there are winners and losers on both sides of both sides of the ocean or whatever when you're when you have trade liberalization and you're open up uh, markets. But I think it's kind of interesting if you look at. So I think that would be the whole story if these free trade agreements were literally just post-it note that says, <laughs> I, won't, I won't implement any tariffs if you don't, you know, and then sign here. Instead right? of being 3,000 pages? <clears throat> right. Instead of being 3,000 pages of stuff that, you know, gets written behind closed doors over a seven-year period, you know, and There's all no that. There's no free trade agreement that shouldn't be more than... Yeah four or five pages yeah right. maybe even a two page front and back so that's fine as an ideal or whatever but when we look at actual free trade agreements so-called free trade agreements so there's there's a good example of the trans-pacific partnership and in my former career as an agricultural extension economist i often fielded questions from farmers about the sort of from their point of view missed opportunity that trump imposed on them by not signing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would have, uh, for them, opened up a lot of new opportunities in sort of East Asia for markets for meat. And it would have reduced the tariffs, would have eliminated quotas, and it would have put more American beef, pork, poultry, etc., in the hands of folks in the, the Far East. And essentially, 
my, my, my response was always, yes, okay, that's a missed opportunity on the price end of things. But there are other elements to these free trade agreements. And inevitably, they are regulatory in nature. And so if you think about the logic of it from a sort of public choice economics perspective, the businesses that have the ear of the politicians in those other countries, they don't want to compete with U.S. US products coming over. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, they're going to lobby for other restrictions to go into place to sort of mitigate their losses from the reduction of these tariffs that were protecting them before. And so one example that was particularly, I think, interesting to farmers was that the Trans-Pacific Partnership would have mandated that the U.S. government make the Millennium Copyright Act a criminal offense. So... Now, why would farmers care about the Millennium Copyright Act? What is the Millennium, yeah, Millennium Copyright Act? <laughs> so the Millennium Copyright Act is, is this legislation that if you manipulate the code or if you, um, like, I guess the best example is like music and stuff, right? Okay. If you copy music and sell it, you know, like Napster and all yeah. that sort of thing, that's what it has to do with, that, those types of sort of electronic rights. But it gets applied to a lot of things. And intellectual property rights more generally. IP, electronic IP in general, right. So one of the problems that these farmers would have had was their their tractors aren't just the old Alice Chalmers with a big diesel (laughs) engine anymore. They're a whole lot different now. And all of the software in them, you know, the farmers wanted to be able to... Basically not sit on their tractor while they're farming. Well, well, no, (laughs) but... They, they, wanted electronics it, they didn't want to wait for the, advances. right. They didn't want to wait for the, the John Deere technician four hours to come out there and fix the software on the tractor if they could just bypass it themselves. Uh-huh. And so they would have incurred severe criminal penalties now for manipulating the software in those tractors oh. because, oh. because there's such, it's such a weird thing. It's almost like you don't really own the tractor. You're just sort of leasing it because of the, the weird agreements and stuff that, huh. okay. that these companies had. And so, so I'm like, have accidentally become criminals. Yeah. And so I, so my thing is, it's just, there's, there's two things here. And of course it's just one example, but number one, there's recognizing that you are making trade-offs in these real world, you know, so-called free trade agreements that are hard to quantify. How do you, how do you put a GDP figure on the fact that now you're going to be a criminal for messing with the software in your own tractor? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's hard to quantify. Yeah. And then the second thing is just sovereignty. You know, why does, why do these other countries, you know, around the Pacific Rim get to dictate domestic U.S. policy? Why does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And, and we, if we should stand a tougher ground, which arguably Trump has done, I mean, by dumping sure. the Trans-Pacific and said it's yep. too, you wouldn't sign too it. convoluted and it's too, it's, it's too one-sided, blah, blah, blah. And it's probably all these little side agreements. There is an argument to be made. Let, let's make it real simple. I won't do this to you. You don't do this to me. Right. So then yeah. we're back to the faith argument here. Do unto others as you have them. <laughs> the golden rule. The, the, the golden rule uh, to you know free trade agreement. Yes, yes. And so I, since I brought up the faith argument, I just I, I wanted to throw this out there. I'm up for a challenge from the listeners, but I can't think of any Bible verse that would support us putting up trade barriers. So we got the love thy neighbor thing. So maybe our neighbor's another country. But then the one that I thought was the showstopper was for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right. 
John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that means Japan and China too, and Mexico and all the other countries around the world. So, you know, who are we to be imposing tariffs that are going to not only hurt us, as we just depicted in the first half of this, that overall we have consumers, you know, going to the benefit of a few, but also hurting our friends overseas in other countries. One other side note I wanted to add, the, this table in this fee article shows uh, for meat, you brought up meat with the tariffs, mm -hmm. currently from 2016, $350,000 per job saved. Wow. So each job is $350,000. I mean, these numbers are so huge. And this table is awesome. I mean, mm -hmm. benzenoid chemicals, have no idea what they are, but because we have a tariff on those chemicals, it's $2.1 million per job. Yeah. $2.1 million. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. That's, you know, that, maybe that's, that's something with pharmaceuticals or something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what a benzonoid, you know, somebody can chime in on that. I'm not going to Google it or anything, but uh, specialty steel was 2 million. I'm just picking off uh, bolts, nuts, and large screws. $1.2 million per job saved. <laughs> 1.2 per job. Yeah. Yep. Right. So from a sovereignty argument and a fairness argument, I, I think I, I always kind of logically boil down to let's not pay favorites, let's have free trade, let's make sure that people are taken care of in terms of a safety net. I'm not anti-safety net of having mobility of labor and people are able to, you know, let's have an active, vibrant market that creates opportunities for people rather than this mentality that I have the right to be sheltered with my manufacturing job that I've had for 20 years, even though what I make is obsolete, I deserve a job like that. And I'll probably get maybe some heat for that, but I, I just logically always kind of boil back to that being the best way to have uh, some of these policies, well, so at least I, on the international trade spectrum. So I think, I think we need to have another episode on, on technology at some point, because I, I, I think I have a lot of spicy things to say about that. Yeah, um, that is a big one. But, but I want to go back to what you were saying, the, the Bible verses you use to justify <laughs> these low tariff barriers. Okay. Um, and, and my only thing would be, you know, be careful with that, because you could also use that same verse to justify a one-world government, or the EU at least, right? Or uh, anti, you know, like this idea that federalism is, is garbage and yeah. we should have a national government, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, well, I mean, love I, your neighbor. I mean, you know, well, that, that obligates you with all these political arguments and policies, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, my immediate pushback to that would be that that's ridiculous, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, but my reasoning would be that, the, back to the Hayek and the knowledge problem, is that God designed this thing this way, that you can only have so much knowledge about your particular space and time circumstances and that having well-defined property rights and empowering people at the individual level to do what's best for themselves is the best way to get the most out of what we got. And so the whole pushing it up to the globalist thing, like, oh, we should love everybody. Let's be all under one government and cozy around the fire and yeah. you sing in your language and I'll sing in mine. <laughs> I'm just not sure that's, uh, that's the thing. And I love doing that, but not in terms of, the best way to allocate scarce resources to their highest and best use. So, yeah, I, I and I think that's the thing. And I think I think we saw that a couple of weeks ago when we were at Creighton, where they were they were talking about 
you know, this whole humanomics perspective. And I think, I just think there, there are other considerations and I think it's good that we're not just talking about the number of jobs or, yeah. or the cost per job or any of that sort of thing, because, you know, I mean, it, it could very well be, and, and maybe this isn't, maybe this is, maybe it couldn't very well be, maybe I'm off in the weeds, but if we think about tariffs, one of their benefits would be this idea that people could uh, maintain these jobs that you're saying are obsolete. But the thing is, if, if somebody, if they lose their job from technology, technological advancement or from, uh, you know, open tariff or, or reductions in tariffs or quotas, then and as we saw in that movie, the pursuit that we watched a while back, they, not every single one of those people is going to be able to retrain. Yeah. You know, you can't expect a 55 year old guy to go back to college. Like it's just not going to happen. Right. Yeah. And so the thing is, what is, what are they going to do? Right. you you have to have some kind of redistribution program and it could be the case, especially, you know, if we get into sort of the psychology of meaningful work and having a job that is fulfilling or at least a job that does something, right. Something where you feel like you're, you know, you're adding something meaningful to the world. Right. And that avoids, you know, all of this horrible stuff that we're, we've been hearing about with suicides and drug overdoses and all this sort of yeah. thing. I mean, there's just a lot of, there's a lot that goes into it that doesn't get caught in that number of $800,000 per job. Right. And I, I think hopefully what this type of analysis does, and unfortunately many economists will stop short here and just say, oh, we'll get rid of the tariffs, right? We have nothing to worry about. And that, that I agree is the, is the wrong approach in that we do have real human beings in Ohio and Tennessee that we might be able to do, but I, I'm hoping what this type of positive analysis of the numbers and it's like, well, there's an opportunity here. Like, why can't we change what we're doing and somehow keep in mind what's going on in those other places and maybe it's through... And again, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been said since, you know, the 1970s that right. will we'll reduce, open up free trade and then retrain those workers into something else. But as technology has advanced and most of those manufacturing jobs have really been destroyed by technology, not so much bye-bye to foreigners. I mean, to sure. for us to say we're going to open that back up and it's going to be some 1950s panacea of, of jobs and stability sure. yeah. is really short-sighted that that whole world has changed. If you go have an opportunity to visit a manufacturing plant nowadays, I, <clears throat> I was able to do that in uh, Mumbai, India, and even there where labor is abundant, mm. they've got a factory floor that's, uh, it was one of the factories that, that had upgraded, but, yeah. but nonetheless, even in the the car factory we went to, I mean, just machines are doing all of this stuff. And yeah. so we're not too far off. We, we can't bring that back to the United States where we're capital intensive and all of a sudden expect that we're going to have these, uh, you know, jobs that are going to be there and stable and whatever. So <clears throat> whatever direction that heads with your point that we need to keep human beings in the forefront of the argument as the policy evolves into hopefully something better. And perhaps if there isn't, you know, money left on the table where, again, looking at these numbers, folks, it's $2 million per job saved. If you're saying we can't somehow extract that $2 million and help out maybe some people or other people in that community, then, then maybe it should stay in place would be the argument. I really doubt that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think uh, having that type of 
morality and ethic behind it would help us move in a, in a better direction. So, all right, well, we didn't exactly get to any trade deficit stuff. So maybe we'll save that for another podcast, but that's kind of a, a different area where should we be trying to rebalance the imports and exports uh, because we have been having a trade deficit for many years. Spoiler alert, who cares? Uh, but we'll spend some time on that maybe in a, in a different episode. So on behalf of the Gorton Institute, we appreciate you listening. And if you're so inclined, uh, we'd love to have you hit the, our donate button on our webpage. And if you have some questions or some thoughts about some future episodes, we've done, we've done a couple of those and have a couple in mind for future um, as we build up some different thoughts and programs. We'd love to hear from you so you can dir- direct an email to me. Uh, russ.mccullough at ottawa.edu and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.